This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, have you ever heard the term cradle of presidents? No, I have never heard that. Well, it's just one of Ohio's many nicknames. This nickname, because eight of the country's 45 presidents were either born here or settled here. I bet you knew that. Yeah, I definitely knew that. Were, very quickly, Ulysses S. Grant from Point Pleasant, Rutherford B. Hayes from Delaware, James Garfield from Moreland Hills, Benjamin Harrison and William Henry Harrison of North Bend, William McKinley from Niles, William Taft from Cincinnati, and Warren G. Harding from a town we know today as Blooming Grove. Now, you may recall we did an episode on the mystery of William Henry Harrison's death, and I'll bet if we tried hard enough, we could find a mystery for each one of these guys. But tonight, we're going to turn our attention to just one, Warren G. Harding, a Republican who died in 1923 during his first term at the White House as America's 29th president. Harding's been gone for nearly a century, but he popped up in the news just this month. That's because President Harding had a love child with one of his mistresses. It was the only child he ever had. Now, a descendant of that union, one of Harding's grandchildren, has asked an Ohio court for permission to exhume the president's body so he can get a direct DNA comparison. Some folks say that's not necessary. It's true that for nearly a century, Harding's lover, Nan Britton, and her daughter, Elizabeth Ann, lived under a shadow with no way to prove Britton's revelation that Elizabeth was his daughter. But that shadow was lifted once and for all five years ago when an ancestry DNA test proved the story to be true. Harding's relatives say they accept those results and all the exhumation would do is potentially damage the crypt shared by Harding and his wife, Florence. This crypt is a huge, circular, white marble temple with Doric columns. It's in Marion Cemetery. If you're ever near the area, stop and and see it. It's a sight to behold. So while we wait for the court to rule on that request for an exhumation, 
let's dig a little deeper into the history. I'm going to jump through Harding's early years here pretty quickly. He was born and raised in rural Morrow County. Then as soon as the 18-year-old graduated from high school, he raised $300 and joined some others in purchasing a failing newspaper, the Marion Star. He must have did pretty well. The Marion Star is still around, serving Marion County residents. Well, Harding used the railroad pass that came with his new newspaper to attend the 1884 Republican National Convention, and that's where his love of politics was born. In 1899, he was elected to the Ohio State Senate. He went on to become Ohio's lieutenant governor and made a failed attempt at the office of governor. Then he went back to the U.S. Senate, and that's the seat he was holding when he ran for president in 1920. He ran on a theme of a return to normalcy after World War I, and he won in a landslide. He became the first sitting senator to be elected president. Harding took office in 1921, but he never finished his term. Two years into it, in 1923, he died of a heart attack. His wife, Florence, died the following year of renal failure. Harding was very popular in his time, but his legacy took a hit after his death when some scandals were revealed, including the Teapot Dome corruption scandal that ensnared some of his top advisors. Today, presidential historians typically rank his administration very low. Others say, wait a minute, he's underrated. He advocated equal rights for African-Americans. He created the Bureau of the Budget, and he led international disarmament efforts. In Europe, he was revered as a man of peace. Well, shortly after Harding and his wife Florence died, the political intrigue of his career took a backseat to what was going on in his personal life. That's because in 1928, a woman named Nan Britton revealed she'd had a six-year relationship with Harding that produced a daughter. It was Harding's only child. Britton's book was the first of its kind, a tell-all biography from a presidential mistress, and it quickly became a popular bestseller. Britton was 31 years younger than Harding, and their affair played out during the jazz-playing, gin-soaked, roaring 20s. Here are some of the details from a recent New York Times article. Nan Britton grew up in Marion, Ohio, where her father knew Harding, and Harding's sister was actually her schoolteacher. She was obsessed with Harding, thought him very handsome, and even hung pictures of him on her bedroom wall. Britton asked Harding for his help in finding a job, and he agreed to meet her in New York. And in July of 1917, at the age of 20, the pair had a tryst in a New York hotel room where she said she became, and these are her words, Mr. Harding's bride. Of course, Mr. Harding had long been married already to Florence, and that hadn't changed. But for the next six years, Harding and Britton met wherever they could, most often in his Senate office. And that's where she conceived a child. Elizabeth Ann was born in October of 1919. He and Britton continued their affair. Though Harding never met his daughter, 
he gave Britain $500 a month to care for her. And after he became president, their expressions of love took place in a small coat closet in the West Wing, with security posted to ward off intruders. Nan Britton was devastated when Harding died in 1923 at the age of 57. Particularly painful was that there would be no more financial support for her and her daughter. And so she decided to make an income from sharing her story. Her book was called The President's Daughter. And after several publishers turned her down, they were not touching this thing with a 10-foot pole. She published it herself through an organization she founded to take up the cause of children born out of wedlock. Of course, this wasn't the first time a president was caught in flagrante delecto, but never before had a presidential mistress gone public. From official corners, this thing was met with great resistance. At one point, the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice even talked New York police into seizing the printing plates for the book. And Congressman John Tillman of Arkansas introduced a bill into the United States House of Representatives attempting to ban the sale of the book, stating that the work was a blast from hell. In the end, of course, those failed as they should fail in a democracy. Britain got her book out and the public couldn't get enough. The book was sold like pornography. It went door to door and was wrapped in brown paper. A lot of people believed Britain. Harding's philandering wasn't exactly a secret. Even his doctors had warned him that all of his amorous activity was going to affect the delicate condition of his enlarged heart. Still, Britain had no way to prove her claim. Harding had once requested she destroy letters and other documents related to their affair, and she did. Harding's family also fought back. They said, wait a minute, he had a childhood bout with mumps that had left him sterile. He had no children with his wife. And since his wife had children from a previous marriage, obviously the infertility lay with him. Well, Britain's daughter Elizabeth grew up, got married, had children, and recently one of her sons, James Blasing, told reporters his family lived with scorn for decades. They were stalked and their house was broken into with items stolen in an attempt to prove the relationship was a lie. Today, James, he's in his 60s and he's living in Portland, Oregon, but he still remembers growing up hearing people belittle his mother and grandmother. He said within the family, the relationship as told to them by Grandma Nan was one of genuine love. Blasing told the Times she loved him until the day she died. When she talked about him, she would get the biggest smile on her face. He was everything. Nan Britton died in 1991. Her daughter, whose married name was Elizabeth Ann Blasing, died November 17, 2005. During her lifetime, Elizabeth had no interest in proving Harding was her dad, so the matter was never pursued until 2011. And the curiosity didn't come from Nan's descendants. It came from a grandnephew of Warren Harding, Peter Harding. 
Peter told the Times he always believed the family line that it was a lie, that President Harding had mumps as a kid and was infertile. But then Peter found a copy of Britain's book, The President's Daughter. It was among his father's belongings, and he cracked it open and began to read. The man that Nan Britton described inside, it sounded an awful lot like the Warren G. Harding he knew from letters that his great uncle had written to yet another lover, Carrie Phillips. Yes, Nan wasn't the first. Turns out Harding had also carried on an affair with Carrie Phillips, who was also from Marion, Ohio. And that relationship lasted 15 years, overlapping with Harding's affair with Nan Britton. It only ended the year he was elected president. That affair with Carrie Phillips was covered in another book written by Harding biographer Francis Russell. By the way, the love letters between Harding and Phillips, they were only released by the Library of Congress in 2014. So this grandnephew, Peter Harding, he calls his cousin Abigail Harding and says, hey, the love letters between Harding and Phillips sound a lot like the guy in this book that Britton wrote. So let's see if we can figure this out. And the pair reached out to the Blazing family in 2011, offering up their DNA. And in 2015, all doubt was erased. Ancestry.com's testing division, Ancestry DNA, confirmed the Blazings were second cousins to Peter and Abigail. So you might be wondering, what is the point of exhuming Harding's remains? Why is this story coming to a head in 2020? Well, this year is the centennial of Harding's 1920 election. And to mark it, the Harding home in Marion was renovated and a new presidential library and research center was built. Both buildings are managed by the Ohio History Connection, which is a really weird name that means Ohio Historical Society. But Harding's grandson, James Blasing, said he doesn't think this new presidential center is taking very serious his family's connection to the president. Blasing told reporters that he wants, and here's a quote, to have his story, his mother's story, and his grandmother's story included within the hollowed halls and museums in this town. The Ohio History Connection told the AP they accept the DNA results as fact, and they do plan on a section of the new museum donated to Harding's relationship with Nan Britton and their daughter, Elizabeth. But Blasing said not a soul has reached out to his family, not even to ask for a photograph or details of her life. And so he suspects his grandmother and mother are going to be treated more like a footnote in the new museum. Blasing told the AP, I did the test and we brought it to the public in 2015. It's now 2020 and no one has asked me one thing. I'm not a part of anything. Nothing. My brothers, myself, no one. We're invisible. They're treating us just like they treated my grandmother. Anyway, his hope is that getting a direct match to the president's DNA will somehow get them more respect. After all, they are the only descendants of President Harding. 
I've got one more little note to add to this. Maybe another mystery, if you will, and this surrounding Harding's death. In August of 1923, Harding and his wife were on a 15,000-mile coast-to-coast rail tour called The Voyage of Understanding. Harding was not doing too well. He knew he had a heart condition, but he had recently been getting cramps, indigestion, fever. He was chalking it up to food poisoning and the stresses of the tour. So on August 2, about 7.20 in the evening, as Harding and his wife relaxed in the presidential suite of San Francisco's Palace Hotel, Florence was reading him the Saturday Evening Post. It was a story about him, actually, and he seemed to be pleased. He said, that's good. Go on. And those were his last words, because right after he said that, he shuddered and dropped dead onto his bed. Harding had been under the care of Charles Sawyer, who some believe misdiagnosed the president's condition and administered stimulants that brought on the fatal heart attack. That's not the mystery. In 1930, Gaston Means, he was a former Harding administration official, tried offering another theory. Means published a book called The Strange Death of President Harding, and in it, he accused Florence Harding of poisoning her husband. He recounted the president's numerous affairs and pointed out that Harding's wife never requested an autopsy and destroyed some of her husband's papers. Now, this was not a widely accepted theory. Means was by no means a reputable guy. He was a notorious confidence man, a bootlegger, and he died in Leavenworth Prison after being convicted for a con he tried to pull related to the kidnapping of the Charles Lindbergh baby. But rumors are a powerful thing. And guessing that Harding's wife probably knew about his dalliances, it is a theory that some folks still like to bring up today. You know, Steve, I wonder if they could do a toxicology on Harding if they're going to exhume him anyway. Maybe a second mystery could be resolved. Yeah, maybe. They should just, uh, they should just, it's his daughter. It's his only descendant, you know, just reach out to the family, try to find out as much information you can and, you know, do the family right. It's 2020. There's no taboo on the subject anymore. I mean, he had one kid. This is his only branch. Absolutely. I have a whole wing devoted to to their life and and the real story. People want the real story. You know, there's no there's no shame here. It, you know, it's, tell us what it is. Put them in right. the put them in the museum. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.